A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. It Sifts from Leaden Sieves by Emily Dickinson It sifts from leaden sieves It powders all the wood It fills with alabaster wool The wrinkles of the road It makes an even face Of mountain and of plain Unbroken forehead from the east Unto the east again It reaches to the fence, it wraps it rail by rail, till it is lost in fleeces. It flings a crystal veil on stump and stack and stem, the summer's empty room. Acres of seams where harvests were, recordless but for them. It ruffles wrists of posts, as ankles of a queen, then stills its artisans like ghosts, denying they have been. This is not one of Emily Dickinson's most famous poems, so it's quite possible that this is the first time you've heard it. And if that's the case, I have a really basic question for you. What do you think it's about? Because all the way through, the poet is talking about it. It sieves from leaden sieves. It powders all the wood. It fills with alabaster wool, and so on. So, what do you think it is? Now, maybe it seems really obvious to you. Or maybe you don't have a clue the the poem flew by you so quickly. Or maybe, like me, the first time I read it, you think you probably know, but you're not 100% sure, and you wouldn't mind going back for another listen or another look before you decide. So, if that's you, then perhaps you might like to rewind the podcast and listen to the poem again before we go on. Or, if you want to have a look at the text, you'll find it in the archive at amouthfulofair.fm slash episodes. Okay. If you're sure you're ready to go on, then I'll give you the answer to the riddle, which is snow. And that might have been obvious to you from the beginning, or you might be thinking, gosh, I would never have guessed that at first listening. Or you might be feeling slightly relieved because you thought the answer probably was snow, but it's nice to have it confirmed. 
So whatever your response, just notice what difference it makes now that I've given you the answer to the riddle. Because I'm serious when I refer to the poem as a riddle. Like many of Dickinson's poems, it's got a distinctively riddling quality to it. Now, a riddle, as we all know, is a guessing game. A very old form of guessing game where one player describes the attributes of something in a vivid and imaginative way, often involving imagery, without telling us what it is. And then we have to guess the answer to the riddle based on the clue. Or quite often there's a series of clues in case we don't get it the first time. And the art of a good riddle is that it is clear enough and obvious enough that it's reasonably possible to guess it. But it's also unusual and imaginative enough that it's not too easy to guess, because there would be no fun in that. As Dickinson wrote in another short poem, this is the whole poem, by the way, The riddle we can guess, we speedily despise. Not anything is stale so long as yesterday's surprise. Now, there's a very interesting book about the nature of poetry called Roots of the Lyric by Andrew Welsh, an American professor, and it was published by Princeton University Press in 1978. As the title suggests, it focuses on lyric poetry, which is the kind of poetry we're most used to reading these days. Probably the easiest way of defining it is to contrast it with epic poetry, which was long stories about monsters and dragons and heroes and so on, and dramatic poetry, where the verse is spoken aloud as part of a dramatic performance, like the ancient Greek theatre or the Elizabethan theatre, exemplified by Shakespeare. These days, most poets don't write epic or dramatic poetry. They focus on the lyric. And, you know, the lyric has come a long way since Aristotle's time. He was the the one who first wrote about this stuff. Back in the day, lyric literally meant it was accompanied by a lyre, so it was a, a form of a song or a chant. These days, we don't get to use a lyre, sadly. Wouldn't that be nice? So these days, a lyric poem is typically a fairly short poem, quite reflective, about a personally relatable experience and how we think and how we feel about it. And to us, you know, it's a bit like you know, asking a fish what water's like, because to us, it's the default mode of writing poetry. But it's interesting to remember that there are other kinds of poetry and that our kind of poetry has only been mainstream for a few hundred years, which is the merest blink of an eye in the story of poetry. And what Andrew Welsh does in his book is look at the roots of the lyric, i.e. the historic and even the prehistoric art forms and cultural traditions that have come together to create modern lyric poetry. And he has chapters in the book on things like images and emblems and magical charms, musical singing and chanting, and also there is a very interesting chapter on the riddle. Welsh points out that many riddles involve vivid mental imagery so that they are close cousins of poetic devices such as metaphor and simile. In fact, his definition of a riddle is that it is a metaphor 
with one term concealed. What does he mean by that? Well, a metaphor is a way of talking about one thing as if it were another. For example, we might describe a man by saying, he was a bull. We don't mean he was literally a bull, but he, that he had a lot of the characteristics of a bull. So, probably he was strong, powerful, maybe overbearing, clumsy, and, and maybe even dangerous. So the metaphor tells us a lot about this person. And with a metaphor, we're given both sides of the equation. In this case, a man, the object, the thing itself, and the bull, which is the poetic image. But with a riddle, as Welsh points out, we're only given one half of the equation. We're given the mental image that's used to describe the thing, but we're not given the thing itself. Because the thing itself is what we have to guess, the answer to the riddle. And in the version of this poem that I've just read you, this is what Emily Dickinson gives us. It's as though she's the riddler and we're the guessers, and we're playing the game together. She gives us one clue after another, to the point where the answer should become obvious. So she starts off by telling us it sifts from lead and sieves and powders all the wood. So it's you know, like an image of flour or maybe sugar being sieved over the, the top of the wood as if you were covering the wood in caster sugar. Then she gives us this extraordinary image of alabaster wool filling the wrinkles of the road, which is really arresting because, of course, alabaster and wool are opposites in several ways. Alabaster is a rock, so it's smooth and cold and hard compared to wool, which we associate with softness and warmth. Then she tells us that it turns the whole landscape into an even face, an unbroken forehead, so it's like this weird human face stretched across the landscape. The following stanza is a bit more conventional, so the snow wraps the fence like a blanket or a fleece and flings a crystal veil over various objects. But after that, things get weird again with this really surprising image of summer's empty room. Because we've been so focused on winter and the cold and the outdoors, it's surprising to be presented with an image of summer and, and being indoors. And then we have those seams where harvests were, which I'm guessing is the snow making visible the furrows in the field, which then act as a kind of record, a bit like an accountant's ledger, of the previous summer's harvest. And just as we've started to get our heads around all of that, Dickinson changes the channel again, and we're staring at an image of a queen with ruffles, which are ornamental frills made of cotton or silk, at her wrists and ankles. As a way of describing the appearance of snow on, on post, I assume it's at the top of the post, like the wrist of the post. Then we get one final bit of mischief from the poet when she says that the snow stills its artisans like ghosts, denying they have been. I mean, <laughs> this is the first time she's mentioned any artisans, so there's no need to make them still as ghosts, nor, and, and certainly not to deny that they have been. I mean, we're, we're left blinking at the spectacle of being told something's disappearing before we're even aware that it's supposed to exist. 
It feels a bit like the poetic equivalent of the Indian rope trick, where the performer climbs the rope into the sky and then pulls it up after themselves. Okay, so one way of reading this poem is to see the poet as a clever riddler, presenting us with one startling image after the other, like pulling rabbits out of hats, and giving us first the pleasure of being surprised and dazzled by the images, followed by the pleasure of guessing the answer and having our guess confirmed. A difficulty with this reading is that some of the easiest clues are at the beginning. You know, those sieves and the powder, it's not too hard to work it out from those. So, if she really did want to tease us, surely she would start with more difficult clues and, you know, work her way down to the the easy ones. And then, there are different versions of this poem in Dickinson's manuscripts, and some of them actually include a title, The Snow which gives the game away altogether. So, I think it's overstating it to say that this poem is a true riddle. But it does have some of the qualities of the riddle, and these are crucial to its poetic effects. By the way, there is a wonderful archive of Emily Dickinson's manuscripts available online. I will include a link to that in the... um, in the show notes at amouthfulofair.fm, or if you Google Emily Dickinson Archive, it, it's got all the digitised versions of the original manuscripts of these poems. It's quite extraordinary and, and, and really interesting to see the difference between the different versions. Okay, so what are the poetic effects of the riddle format in this poem? Well, firstly, it prompts us to take a fresh look at the world by using our visual imagination and making pictures in our mind and relating them to different aspects of the snow. And the special characteristic of a riddle, as we've seen, is the fact that part of the equation is missing. So, in a riddling poem like this, there is a hole in the poem where the subject would normally be. And as I was thinking about this, I remembered an amazing book by Betty Edwards called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. I read it when I was a teenager and I was trying to improve my drawing skills. And one exercise that's always stayed with me involved drawing a complicated object like a tree or a bunch of flowers. Now, obviously this would would normally be a very difficult subject to draw, especially if you're a beginner. You know, when you first start out drawing, you typically find yourself drawing stereotypical images like stick people or or trees or flowers that look more like computer icons. They don't don't look remotely realistic. And Edwards' argument is that this is because we are drawing the symbol in our mind rather than looking at the actual object in front of us. So if we want to get better at drawing, we first need to get better at looking. Then she does a brilliant thing with this exercise where she suggests instead of trying to draw the object, draw the space around the object. So you look all the way around the edges of the tree and draw the patterns of the sky against it. Or if you're indoors with that bunch of flowers, look at the shapes of the wall behind the flowers and draw all of those shapes. And when you do this something magical happens. 
So I remember drawing a tree using this method. And for a while I became really absorbed in all the tiny little complicated shapes of the sky around the tree. It was a bit like tracing around the fjords around Norway. But then there was a moment where I kind of blinked and I looked at the whole page and there was the tree. And it was bursting out of that white space that surrounded it. And it was the best drawing of a tree I'd ever done. And the reason it was so much better than my usual efforts was because I was actually looking and seeing what was in front of my eyes. And I think this is what Emily Dickinson does for us in this poem. Now, she seems to have gone back and forth about whether the poem needed a title with the word snow in it. She's clearly avoided using the word snow in the poem itself. So what she's given us is the equivalent of the white space around the tree, those images that describe the snow in a series of riddle-like comparisons. I mean, think about the opening two lines. Imagine if she had written, The snow sifts from leaden sieves and powders all the wood. That's not bad, is it? And also you get a nice extra bit of alliteration with the extra S. But there's no tension here. It's a fairly obvious metaphor comparing the falling of snow to a powdery substance being sifted through a sieve. But now listen again to what Dickinson actually wrote. It sifts from leaden sieves. It powders all the wood. And notice how the use of it introduces a note of dramatic tension, because it automatically prompts the question, what sifts from leaden sieves? What powders all the wood? There's something mysterious and even slightly eerie about this undefined presence in the landscape. And I'd say the effect is even there subliminally in the version of the poem that includes the title the snow. And by deleting the subject, the poet puts all the emphasis on the poetic images. So we really see those sieves and that powder, I think, much more vividly in the riddling version than in the metaphorical version. So that's the advantage of using a riddle instead of a metaphor. But remember, it's not a true riddle. Dickinson's made it too obvious for that. And this has a consequence because if it were a straightforward riddle, we could get the answer and be satisfied with that. Game over. But in poetry, of course, there are no right answers. There's no final, oh yes, now I've got it, I can stop thinking about it. The game of poetry is never over. You can always read the poem again and find another meaning in it. And so, even when we've guessed that the poem is about snow, even when Dickinson hits us over the head with the answer in the versions titled The Snow, even when we can say to ourselves, oh, this is Emily Dickinson coming up with clever ways of talking about snow, it doesn't quite settle the issue, does it? We still feel that there could be further meanings and mysteries in the poem waiting to be discovered. So I find this quite an unsettling poem. 
you know, it prompts us to to look for an answer, to, to get a right answer, but then it kind of undercuts the idea that there is a right answer. And Dickinson doesn't really make much effort to accommodate us and make all of this easy. It feels more like the poet is talking to herself or to the snow or to some mysterious invisible listener rather than talking directly to us. And it's not just the weird imagery. There's quite a few oddities of phrasing and syntax as well. Listen to that opening line once again. It sifts from leaden sieves. Surely it would be more natural to say it is sifted from leaden sieves. Because flour or sugar, they don't normally sieve themselves, do they? It's a bit of a strange use of the verb. Or what about the final stanza, which opens, It ruffles wrists of posts. I'm pretty sure she doesn't mean that it ruffles the posts the way the wind ruffles the sea or the way a hand might ruffle the curtains. The posts aren't moving. The snow is adding ruffles, ornamental frills, to the posts. So it's decidedly odd of Dickinson to use that word ruffles in this way. You may remember Kate Ling last time in episode 17 saying that she likes poetry where the poet doesn't do all the work for you and asks you to join in as a reader and fill in some of the gaps. And I certainly think this is that kind of poem and Dickinson is that kind of poet. So by using the riddle format... Dickinson demands that we join in the game and take a fresh look at the concept of snow by engaging with this series of startling images. And the fact that we can easily guess the answer to the riddle makes us question whether we have in fact got the right answer, or at least the whole answer. And the result of all of this is we become highly conscious of the act of reading the poem or in our case today, of listening to it. We don't get lost in this poem. We don't find ourselves absorbed in it, and then coming to a couple of minutes later thinking, oh gosh, I was miles away, I was transported by the poem. No, we are very aware all the way through that we are reading a poem, and that we need to make a mental effort to decipher it. It's a bit like reading the metaphysical poets from the 17th century or the Martian poets from the 1980s when you're presented with a series of startling images and you need to switch on your brain to work them out. And I want to emphasise this as a strength in Dickinson's work because the myth of her poetry has been fed by her life, which was considered pretty eccentric at the time, she famously withdrew from society and hardly left her house from her 30s onwards. And, of course, there's also the elemental power of particularly some of her most famous poems, where there's a lot of religious and natural and existential themes. And I certainly don't want to belittle that in any way. But, you know, there is a danger of the cliché of the poet of nature, of God, of the elements and of the emotions, particularly with a female poet. And there's a risk of limiting her achievement to feeling and mood and atmosphere, which I think does a disservice to her. 
Because as we can see in a poem like this, she was also an extremely intelligent and observant writer. She's a poet of thought and perception, as well as feeling. And I think her use of riddle in this poem in particular is very clever and entirely appropriate to its subject. Because the way snow works on our perception of the world is very similar to the way a riddle works. I think it's no coincidence that snow transforms our world by adding a lot of white space. And this white space means we take a fresh look at our everyday world. It's as though most of it has vanished into the whiteness. And paradoxically, that means we actually see what's in front of our eyes instead of taking it for granted. And we rush out and we look at it and we walk through it and we take photos and we put them on Instagram and we talk to each other about it. And a few of us write poems about it. So when you listen to the poem again, listen for the answer to the riddle, the word that is everywhere in the poem, even though it never appears. It Sifts from Leaden Sieves by Emily Dickinson It sifts from leaden sieves It powders all the wood It fills with alabaster wool The wrinkles of the road It makes an even face Of mountain and of plain Unbroken forehead from the east Unto the east again It reaches to the fence, it wraps it rail by rail, till it is lost in fleeces. It flings a crystal veil on stump and stack and stem, the summer's empty room. Acres of seams where harvests were, recordless but for them. It ruffles wrists of posts, as ankles of a queen, then stills its artisans like ghosts, denying they have been. Emily Dickinson was an American poet who was born in 1830 and died in 1886. She lived for almost her entire life in the family home in Amherst, Massachusetts. She gained a reputation for eccentricity by rarely leaving the house or even coming down to meet visitors. Her friendships were conducted mainly via her extensive correspondence. During her lifetime, only a handful of her poems were published in a heavily edited format. 
but after her death, hundreds of poems were discovered by her sister Lavinia. Eventually, her entire corpus of almost 1,800 poems was published and has established her as one of America's greatest poets. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links, as well as a full episode archive, at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.